right, welcome to the second weekend special episode. And this time we're going to talk about uh, the Second Amendment. And this is a, something that, uh, much like kind of the these recurrent theme, themes of ideological problems that pop up sporadically, uh, you know, abortion, voting rights, firearms, it just seems like it routinely emerges uh, every time there's a particularly violent weekend in an inner city. Uh, well, actually, no, usually then it's not brought up. Generally, whenever and only in the extraordinarily rare instance of a mass shooting, and even then only a mass shooting that qualifies under, under certain criteria, uh, is the subject of, of the Second Amendment vaulted into uh, the limelight. And what's lacking in this conversation, though, is an understanding uh, so you have both sides who generally flail and repeat kind of a a, a, set, a rigid set of uh, assertions uh, that really don't even relate to one another. Uh, one side just repeatedly argues for the Second Amendment. The other side just repeatedly argues uh, emotion and passion, uh, really just kind of nothing beyond the, the, the most basic fallacious arguments. So to the, to the benefit of the entire discussion, it's important, like other things, to understand not just the Second Amendment as it was written, but the circumstances surrounding it, uh, the conversations and debates held concerning uh, the Second Amendment, its usage and application after uh, it was assigned into the Constitution, uh, and of course, uh, previous events, uh, the colonial history, uh, that deliberately shaped uh, the Second Amendment. And what's what's never in the conversation, and really should be the start of the conversation, is how the Second Amendment applies to natural rights theory. Uh, and that is also just happens to be the most powerful argument uh, that favors the right to keep and bear arms, uh, despite any other assertions. So we're going to go over uh, several of these details uh, and really fill in a lot of this missing historical uh, and philosophical context that really runs rampant on, on both sides of this debate, uh, which is unfortunate uh, because uh, one side in particular uh, stands to gain a great deal uh, by just going through and doing some, some slight uh, learning work here. Uh, but of course, we're not just going to discuss the historical context today, although as important as that is, the historical context is just there to then extrapolate into the present conversation. So we're also going to discuss some of these facts, figures, headlines, uh, some of the sensationalist uh, articles being pushed out there and statements pushed out there, uh, and just take those uh, accusations and assertions and apply those to uh, logical data sets and see how they uh, withstand any kind of scrutiny beyond just kind of this this popular meme culture uh, soundbite argumentation. Uh, and I think what you're going to find as we explore some of these things uh, is, well, maybe not so surprisingly, uh, they are grossly sensationalized, uh, like much of the uh, air quotes uh, news and information channels out there now, uh, the point is not to actually communicate a truthful message, but to either communicate uh, or confirm a desired bias or thesis. So let's just start uh, with an understanding of the Second Amendment 
by what it says. The Second Amendment reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So just looking at the structure of this amendment, uh, the placement of the commas, which I tried to punctuate a bit there uh, with my speech, um, it already sets up that the right of the people to keep and bear arms not being infringed is actually essential to the necessary security of a free state and a well-regulated militia. It does not the not the inverse. Uh, but the first two clauses actually reflect many of the debates uh, concerning how state militias uh, were going to be formed and how they were going to be regulated and controlled, who ultimately had the authority. And this came down really to, well, are we going to have the Militia Act as uh, an extension of federal power? Or are we going to have individual state militias, uh, which are, of course, be armed and trained uh, differently, just like everything uh, was approached differently in various states, which is a, a, a good thing. And the, uh, the founders and framers, they had a, a very uh, <laughs> worthwhile concern of a strong standing national army. Uh, it had long, has pretty well long been a history uh, lesson of sorts that a free nation with a massive standing army would not be a free nation for long. That's why Rome had their particular rules uh, as far as where the army was allowed to uh, position itself. You know, that's the famous crossing the Rubicon uh, come, stems from that understanding uh, because the the balance of power instantly shifts away from politics and to military might, uh, which is just kind of a natural consequence of having a militarized uh, governmental structure. And of course, we're talking now about uh, kind of the just post-colonial uh, founding era of the United States, and we had just fought uh, a devastating war uh, with Britain. And uh, Britain was that national army. Uh, so this ongoing concern over too much power into a federal structure, into the national government, versus the power shared by the various states. And so to, to remedy that, uh, the solution was to, well, let's just have state militias. and uh, That way the militias can be called in to act in the event of a foreign invasion or an insurrection. Um, but then that lent itself to several uh, problems and a sense of discord uh, because the experiences that the founders had uh, during their, uh, their war with, with Britain uh, clarified how difficult it was actually to organize, discipline, uh, and, and then uh, coherently function uh, an army comprised of so many disparate sections. So this constituted then an issue of uh, efficacy, really. So the fear of tyranny on one hand, or potential for tyranny, let's say, and then just kind of a, a less capable, less efficient uh, a force on the other. And the solution to this problem was the Second Amendment. 
uh, and it was expressed uh, prior to the constitution of courts uh, during the actual uh, founding era in the declaration. The, the rationale was if the different state militias determined uh, either collectively or through any type of congressional control to act in a despotic manner, to become that, that crossing the Rubicon military coup situation, it wouldn't be uh, really a, a big issue other than the obvious horror of the events because every American citizen was armed, and not just armed, but armed in a sufficient way that it could uh, directly confront the threat of the state militias. Now, what's critical to understand in this discussion especially is that throughout, and we're going to go through several of these letters and correspondences and speeches by founding fathers about this exact subject, but this state militia, or the militia more generally, in discussion is always referenced separate from the citizenry. Uh, there's a very uh, kind of cherry-picked uh, idea out there that, oh, the Second Amendment only applied to state militias. But in order to hold that, uh, you have to ignore all of the conversations and concerns of power and struggle uh, that surrounded its adoption. So at the at the kind of the onset of these debates, the issue wasn't even should all citizens have equal access to all weapon systems available. The only real debates that took place were whether or not this would amount to a sufficient enough check on the potential of federal overreach. Uh, there was no conversations of, oh, what kinds of weapons should we allow citizens to have? There was no a uh, question as far as what accessories or optics or special handles or, uh, you know, s different stands or any other silly things. There was never a topic of discussion. Uh, and also contrary to the oft-repeated and uh, always wrong uh, comment that is so popularized, especially by uh, those in the highest offices of power, uh, you could actually own a cannon at this time. Yes, yes, you could. Uh, in fact, there were instances where individuals uh, were uh, largely to attack slave raiding vessels would come into possession of cannons, and then uh, they were allowed to keep those cannons. And fortunately for uh, the fate of human history, uh, use those cannons on other slave vessels. So... Uh, <laughs> The, the funny thing, really, with the whole conversation at this time uh, was that it was, is that enough? There was, not only was there no thought of any restrictions, the only concern was if that was going to be sufficient. So even though the modern discourse is, is just punctuated with take away this, uh, magazine capacity that, you know, oh, your barrel's too short or too long, if you actually apply the founding era logic to the current debate, it would find any restriction on accessories and that kind of thing to be an absurdity. So the Second Amendment arose as a solution to uh, federalizing the army, essentially. Uh, the National Guard, as it currently stands, is 
kind of into that kind of that that state militia group um but militias kind of ran out of popularity fairly quickly uh, after the ratification of the constitution uh but it was an attempt anyway to uh, adopt a potent enough military force for defense against foreign invasion and insurrection uh, but without positioning things in such a way that the country could simply be dominated by military power. This also allowed then for a uniformity of training, a uh, uniformity of weapon systems, uh, and it also removed the, uh, the potential that a state could grow uh, too powerful and then enforce military might against its neighbors or even the entirety of the nation. Uh, which was a uh, unfortunately the realization in many respects that occurred uh, first very nearly with the nullification crisis in South Carolina between 1828 and 1832 and of course it did manifest itself in the Civil War which was essentially a states versus uh, states circumstance there uh, even though that they consider themselves to be a separate nation or whatnot. So when confronted with a choice whether they would have a multiplicity of militias controlled by individual states, which would have been too weak and too divided, likely, to effectively act as a defensive force for the entire nation, or they could authorize a massive militia under federal control, which the problem there, too, is if it's a federally controlled army at this point, that is no longer a check on federal tyranny. And again, enter the Second Amendment, uh, a cursory reading of the natural rights theory and how that applied to the Declaration made this very clear that the purpose of the Second Amendment was to arm the citizens as a last resort uh, to rise up and abolish uh, a, an unjust government. The only reason that the founders adopted this process or this kind of acceptance of a federal militia was with the understanding that citizens would be armed and that that right would not be infringed. It was an essential component to the structure of our foundation to the United States government. It wasn't simply oh, it'd be really cool to let people have guns so they can go hunt stuff. It was, our system as it's designed can only function in a healthy way with citizens' rights to own and keep firearms not being infringed. Now, when Madison began to uh, discuss this amendment to Congress, uh, this is just before, this is before uh, they were officially uh, adopted into the Constitution as the, into the Bill of Rights. Uh, so in 1789... Uh, Madison uh, addresses Congress and says, and I quote, The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A well-armed and well-regulated militia being the, being the best security of a free country, but no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. So he's reading, uh, obviously, kind of the uh, predecessor to uh, the final uh, amendments as they were. So examine this one and how that is, is put forward. 
he leads with the right of the people to keep Marmosh not be infringed. And then there's a semicolon afterwards. He pauses there. It's separate that a well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security-free country, and another semicolon there. So he's separating these two ideas. So even though that they are uh, interrelated, so a well-armed and well-regulated militia can be understood to represent not the state level at this point, but really the federal control over that. And essential to that component, since that is the best, uh, allows the best security of a free country, essential to that component then is the right of the people to keep and bear arms not being infringed. So again, these, these debates were not punctuated with any question of whether citizens should be allowed to own a particular type of firearm or firearms in general. It was really just if that would be a sufficient check of power for the federal control of the various state militias. Obviously, that's, stark, or that's a stark contrast to the uh, current discussion. So the, the clearest purpose of the Second Amendment here, then, is that it was not applied to the militia. It was a defense or a check against federal authority being applied uniformly over state militias. There is nowhere, anywhere in these debates, I would challenge any anybody to go in and find any legitimate concern over uh, any thought that the federal government had the power to regulate what weapons citizens could own. And especially... Uh, any type of federal authority to disarm citizens. This this very notion is, is antithetical to the purpose of government as it was understood at the founding uh, of our nation. Uh, and it was also contrary to natural rights and obviously contrary uh, to the Constitution and the Declaration. Uh, ironically, the, so little concern was paid to this that it was a truism that citizens should have a right to uh, own, bear, keep firearms. Uh, Since it was extended from natural rights uh, theory and doctrine, which was the same foundational uh, ideology for our legal system and everything else, uh, the Second Amendment was only put forward uh, to kind of pacify anti-federalists who felt that uh, these things needed to be uh, expressed openly. And of course, the, the irony... Uh, well, kind of tragic irony that we can enjoy at the modern day is just the cynicism of the anti-federalists was largely discounted at the time. And every year since then, uh, their complaints and their concerns have only been uh, found to be increasingly justified and poignant to our current circumstances. So if we look at the, uh, the passage of the Constitution, uh, and of course the Bill of Rights, all these good things, but there were no federal laws on firearms. There were no laws or restrictions about what kind of firearms a citizen could own. Now, we do get into some state-level laws here pretty soon, and that's going to really expand on things, um, especially since the state laws generally just prohibited or restricted weapon possession um, by slaves, of course, uh, because just as we'll discuss about natural rights theory, uh, it's virtually impossible to subjugate an unwilling population if they're armed, hence kind of a big deal for the Second Amendment. 
but this also included indentured servants or indentures. And this, we can all thank uh, Bacon's Rebellion for that largely. Um, that was a a kind of a unified force between indentured servant slaves, uh, well, I should, I should specify African slaves and Amerindian slaves, uh, to uh, combat what they felt was a an unfair uh, governor at the time, uh, which I write about uh, Bacon's Rebellion in Volume 1, I believe, yeah. But so that's that's really the only place you see gun laws popping up at all. Uh, it's never at a federal level, uh, generally at the state level. Uh, of course, there were some federal laws uh, restricting gun ownership uh, by Native American tribes or Amerindian tribes, but there is a very stark and important distinction there because those uh, tribes were still dealt with as an independent nation. Uh, they were not putting gun restrictions on American citizens whenever they applied gun restrictions uh, to native lands and nations and tribes. So what this really highlights is that the right of citizens to own and bear arms was not the subject of membership in a militia. And this is evidenced again through a lot of these conversations where the two are addressed separately, repeatedly. Uh, and even the, the actual sentence structure of the Second Amendment doesn't lend itself to that interpretation, unless, of course, one chooses to interpret it that way. Uh, in fact, it was the arming of citizens was an essential component to a checks and balance system uh, that uh, was... Uh, ingrained into the founding doctrine. Uh, and it should be understood then that the Second Amendment wasn't about hunting. And to a lesser extent, it wasn't specifically about self-defense because that was considered as a natural right, so it, it was something that was so obvious it didn't need to be uh, specified, although uh, Trudeau in Canada would, would disagree with that. But what it was understood specifically as a control or as a check on the federal dominance of state militias. Now, what's really interesting about this, though, is that this conversation changed dramatically uh, with the 14th Amendment. Uh, the 14th Amendment, uh, well, as the nation was founded, the states were meant to be a check on national tyranny, but there really wasn't a lot of consideration or concern about state level tyranny, uh, the belief being that. Uh, people that the states would reflect the will of their people. Uh, of course, obviously, the slave states uh, took that and ran with it, and the Democrat Party uh, especially latched onto that as a means of perpetuating the slave power oligarchy in their states. Um, but the 14th Amendment then actually kind of created a retroactive system there, or a reciprocative system, where the national government could defend the rights of citizens in the states, and the states then could also theoretically act as a check on national authority. So if we're reading and examining these things in, in, in that spirit, uh, then the national government, the federal government, could nullify gun laws in the states uh, predicated on the 14th Amendment. But let's, let's examine then a couple, of, uh, a couple of things that the most formative men at the time had to say about this. So in Federalist 28, uh, which uh, if you're not familiar with the Federalist Papers, it is my strong suggestion that you read them, you know, probably with some type of guide, 
they can be a little tough to get through, uh, especially without the historical context behind them, because this is kind of a series of letters usually published uh, uh, between a number of authors under the pseudonym of Publis. And, but it was meant to elucidate uh, not just the uh, the debates of the Constitution, but also the form and function of our government. Uh, the Federalist Papers are, in effect, one of the uh, most important uh, documents to how our government should function. So in Federalist 28, um, James Madison uh, kind of discusses the, the validity, then, of an armed populace capable of assisting in the defeat of insurrectionist forces. So he writes... An insurrection, whatever may be its immediate cause, eventually endangers all government. Regardless to the, or regard to the public peace, if not to the rights of the Union, would engage the citizens, to whom the contagion had not communicated itself, to oppose the insurgents. And if the general government should be found in practice conducive to the prosperity and felicity of the people, it were irrational to believe that they would be disinclined to its support. So the armed population would act kind of as a check even on domestic problems and insurrections. It would be impossible for it to function in that regard uh, without the Second Amendment, of course. So Madison's highlighting then the innate value of an armed citizenry, uh, not only against the potential tyranny of the federal government, which was the foundation of the Second Amendment, but even against homegrown tyranny, the most local and basic levels of tyranny. And Madison noted that the federal control over state militia, it was a, a, a fortuitous safeguard against the state-run tyranny. And that the states, acting concertedly, could also check federal tyranny. So still writing in Federalist 28, uh, Madison explains, The obstacles to usurpation and the facilities of resistance increase with the increased extent or, of the state provided the citizens understand their rights and are disposed to defend them. The natural strength of the people in a large community, in proportion to the artificial strength of the government, is greater than in a small and, of course, more competent to a struggle with the attempts of the government to establish a tyranny. But in a confederacy, the people, without exaggeration, may be said to be entirely the masters of their own fate, power being almost always the rival of power. The general government will at all times stand ready to check the usurpations of state governments, and these will have the same disposition towards the general government. The people, by throwing themselves into either scale, will infallibly make it preponderant. If their rights are invaded by either, they can make use of the other as an instrument of redress. So again, Madison's approaching this with the understanding that the people will be able to operate as the deciding factor in determining a tyrannical overreach by either the federal or the state governments. And this included, or includes, a military or martial conflict. Note specifically that in this excerpt I just read here, there is no mention of militia just the people, the citizens, the citizenry. Madison doesn't explain, well, in the event of federal uh, tyranny or overreach, the state militia, which is 
well-armed and regulated, will then come in to defend the people. Now, the state militia is mentioned just simply by uh, referring to the power of the state, what he calls an artificial power, as it's derived from the people. But when it comes down to the deciding factor, it is the citizenry and not the militia. Earlier in the same note, or in the same uh, writing, he actually notes uh, that the citizens must rush tumultuously to arms in order to respond to tyrannical activity. And he expands on this further as well, uh, saying that projects of usurpation cannot be masked under pretenses so likely to escape the penetration of select bodies of men as the people at large. We should recollect that the extent of the military force must at all events be regulated by the resources of the country. For a long time to come, it will not be possible to maintain a large army, and as the means of doing this increases, the population and natural strength of the community will proportionally increase. When will the time arrive that the federal government can raise and maintain an army capable of erecting a despotism over the great body of the people of an immense empire? who are in a situation through the medium of their state governments to take measures for their own defense with all the celerity, regularity, and system of independent nations. So Madison is describing uh, really what actually occurs in American history, where as the government grew and the country grew and our resources grew, uh, the capability uh, became, became such that we could uh, maintain a standing army, which as we currently do. But Madison explains, you know, in any other type of context, that would be a risk. But the power of the people, uh, through their obvious concomitant population growth, would continue to maintain that check of power. Uh, It would be very hard to argue how an unarmed populace or a populace armed with inferior weapons could be expected to maintain a check and balance on an expanding and growing federal army. Um, If we were to apply today's logic retroactively to this time period, uh, the people would have a right to bear and keep rocks, while the army would have their flintlock rifles and cannons and whatnot. Uh, So in other words, it does not make any reasonable sense at all Uh, In fact, again, what Madison is highlighting here is that it is essential that the citizens maintain and keep their own firearms, and not just own and keep them, uh, but that those firearms are at least comparable to those being employed uh, by the federal, I'll say federalized uh, or national militia through the various states. So again... The Second Amendment is acting as a check, as a balance against federal tyranny, not for hunting, not for sport shooting, but specifically to resist uh, the very real and logical potential for federal tyranny. Uh, the founders, unlike uh, present leadership, uh, did not pretend that the enormity of human history and experience uh, was no longer applicable to them because they were just simply messianic. So as the army grew in power and the federal government then grew in power, it would it would be checked by the growing population of armed citizens. 
And another uh, Federalist, this time Federalist 29, we also get an insight into the uh, the separate understanding of militia from citizenry. So writing in Federalist 29, uh, it says, The project of disciplining all the militia of the United States is as futile as it would be injurious if it were capable of being carried into execution. A tolerable expertness in military movements is a business that requires time and practice. It is not a day or even a week that will suffice for the attainment of it. To oblige the great body of the yeomanry and of the other classes of the citizens, to be under arms for the purpose of going through military exercise and evolutions as often might be necessary, to acquire the degree of perfection which would entitle them to the character of a well-regulated militia, would be a real grievance to the people and a serious public inconvenience and loss. So this is one of the most powerful arguments uh, against the, uh, the, the pure state form of militias. And it was an erroneous assumption that all citizens would then have to serve in these militias, which was a log- a, you know, just, just an impracticality. Uh, this argument was one put forward largely by those in favor of the uh, federal control, and it does highlight some of the practical issues. Uh, and it also highlights those same issues if one were to assume that the Second Amendment only applied to a ro- well-regulated militia. In this example here, he's saying, well, then everybody would have to be trained in the militia. It wasn't, oh, well, we'll only be able to arm people in the militia. So this is a critical understanding of how this was meant to be applied. So even though this was an inaccurate understanding and one that obviously didn't uh, continue and perpetuate and and later get adopted, it nonetheless highlights an important distinction here in the understanding of the militia and the function of an armed citizenry. So uh, Madison addresses this again in in even clearer language, uh, which just to, again, highlight this, the in the prior excerpt, the militia and the citizens are again discussed as separate entities. So in Federalist 46, Madison actually explains this even more clearly. He says, Besides the advantage of being armed, which the Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation, the existence of subordinate governments to which the people are attached and by which the militia officers are appointed forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition more insurmountable than any which a simple government of any form could admit of, notwithstanding the military establishments in the several kingdoms of Europe, which are carried uh, as far as the public resources will bear, the governments are afraid to trust the people with arms, and it is not certain that with this aid alone they would not be able to shake off their yokes. So, in juxtaposing uh, the American system with some of the European systems, he's, he's noting that uh, the tyranny there had grown so great, or we'll just say government power there had grown so great that at, at this point, even arming citizens may not be a sufficient check. But that was not the circumstances in America. And notice, too, he says again that the advantage of being armed, which the American possess over the people of almost... He doesn't say the militia. He doesn't say that the, the great uh, advantage of the American militia or of American nation is its armed militia. Uh, So again, he's separating the understanding or the idea of Americans or citizens more generally uh, with militias. Again, just really, just really tearing down that, uh, the the kind of really absurd notion that the Second Amendment only applied to militias. 
1788, Patrick Henry, uh, he also highlighted how critical it was to have an armed population. He says, Oh, sir, we should have fine times indeed if, to punish tyrants, it were only sufficient to assemble the people. Your arms, wherewith you could defend yourselves, are gone, and you have no longer an aristocratical, no longer a democratical spirit. So he's explaining that even if you have the will of the people to overthrow a tyrannical government, unless you have weapons of sufficient caliber, no pun intended, to address that government, well, then your passions are meaningless. So the the possession of uh, sufficient means and firearms was essential to a just, uh, non-tyrannical mode of governance. Which he also goes on to explain then uh, that without sufficient arms, uh, there really could be no recourse against tyrannical federal, uh, federal force. He says, you cannot force them to receive their punishment. Of what service would militia be to you when, most probably, you will not have a single musket in the state? For as arms are to be provided by Congress, the mayor may not furnish them. So, again, this highlights another intent, that the citizens would be armed themselves and not dependent that the government uh, would be responsible for arming them. And that, that comes from this this con- this congressional oversight of the militia. So now the question was, well, if, if the federal government controls all the state militias, then they would be responsible for arming those militias, you know, in theory. And so what he's highlighting here is the, the absurdity then of not allowing citizens to be armed in and of themselves. Uh, most notably, uh, you know, he mentions you will not have a single musket in the state. So he's explaining that there should be no dependency on the federal government to arm citizens either, that they should be allowed to procure firearms in and of their own volition. Now, Noah Webster, again, recognized this kind of this reality. Uh, in 1787, a year prior, he wrote that before a standing army can rule, the people must be disarmed as they are in almost every kingdom of Europe. The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword, because the whole body of the people are armed and constitute a force superior to any bands of regular troops that can be on any pretense raised in the United States. So again, we're addressing the American citizens and people separate from any kind of militia, and he's also describing how essential that is to check federal overreach. Now, Thomas Paine, uh, of course, wrote uh, Common Sense and arguably was the most influential statesman in colonial America. Uh, he also noted this uh, in his uh, Thoughts on a Defensive War, uh, which he writes, Thus the peaceable part of mankind will be continually overrun by the vile and abandoned, while they neglect the means of self-defense. The supposed quietude of a good man allures the ruffian, while on the other hand, arms like laws discourage and keep the invader and the plunderer in awe and preserve order in the world as well as property. The balance of power is the scale of peace. The same balance would be preserved were all the world destitute of arms, for all would then be alike. 
but since some will not and others dare not lay lay them aside. And while a single nation refuses to lay them down, it is proper that all should keep them up. Horrid mischief would ensue were one half the world deprived of the use of them. For while avarice and ambition have a place in the heart of man, the weak will become prey to the strong. The history of every age and nation establishes these truths, and facts need but little arguments when they prove themselves. So this horrid mischief that he's discussing here uh, is precisely what occurs in American uh, and world history uh, through every age, and especially since um, the democide against unarmed populations by the uh, national or federal tyranny as the leading cause of death in the 20th century. 262 million people were killed in the 20th century uh, by the acts of despotic governments, and those people lacked the sufficient means to defend themselves from that government. Uh, and to put that in context a little bit, uh, that is six times the number of people killed in all of the wars in the 20th century. So we're talking six times more than World War One, World War II, uh, combined, and of course some of the smaller conflicts as well. So we've established at this point already, just, just looking at uh, documents at the time, speeches, debates, uh, the words of the founders and framers, the Second Amendment had nothing to do with hunting or sports. It was not just a kind of random kind of revolutionary thought of overthrowing the government either. It was as an essential check and balance uh, meant uh, really to contribute to the overall separation of powers. And it was the solution, actually, to the quandary of how to best approach a military force in the new nation. Uh, the solution to uh, the congressional control over the different state militias was an armed population, an armed population of sufficient means uh, to resist uh, those militias and, should the necessity arise, uh, to resist federal tyranny as well. So concerns of gun confiscation and, and other forms, we can look back and see, well, how, why was this such an important thing for the founders? And we can examine that uh, through fairly recent history relative to the Declaration of the Constitution uh, and the ongoing conflicts with Britain and colonial America. Uh, just as they forced the colonies to continue to practice the slave trade. Uh, there were many instances, uh, especially uh, in the 10 years prior to the Declaration of Independence, uh, where there was kind of bristling tensions between the colonies and Britain, uh, that Britain decided, you know, now would be a great time to not to let the colonists have sufficient arms to resist us. So several times throughout this uh, kind of tumultuous period, there were attempts made to confiscate weapons, and some attempts were uh, were popular. Uh, and of course, this did not escape the wise men at the time. You have James Otis, Thomas Paine, uh, and other very important thinkers, uh, well, and, and Minutemen as well. Uh, they recognized the problems here. So in seventeen, even in seventeen seventy-seven. So this is a year after the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the Undersecretary of State to the British Colonial Office, William Knox, uh, he had 
a kind of a clandestine plan to uh, confiscate weapons from the colonists. Uh, what he proposed was, and I'm just going to quote from his own uh, communication here, the militia laws should be repealed and none suffered to be reenacted, and the arms of all the people should be taken away and every piece of ordnance removed into the king's stores, nor should any foundry or manufactory of arms, gunpowder, or warlike stores be ever suffered in America, nor should any gunpowder, lead, arms, or ordnance be imported into it without license. They will have but little need for such things in the future, as the king's troops' ships' forts will be sufficient to protect them from any danger. So we have this nice paternalistic British uh, force saying, well, you don't need your guns, guys. We'll protect you. You don't need uh, sufficient means to defend yourself. We'll do that for you. And, of course, the purpose, the real purpose, was to disarm uh, colonists so that they could be uh, more effectively subjugated. And that will be a trend that emerges throughout uh, human history, uh, not just at this time, but the, the, well, the tragic consequences of disarmament that followed uh, subsequent centuries. So this was really just kind of the latest manifestation. Uh, in 1768, there were rumors already circulating uh, concerning British confiscation of firearms and uh, kind of a broader martial law across the colonies. So in response to these rumors, uh, James Otis and other uh, future Americans, formative thinkers at the time, uh, they submitted a series of, of proposals to a British royal governor in order to maintain their rights to possess firearms. It's important to understand, too, at this time, that uh, natural rights theory and English common law were still prevalent in the colonies. And these restrictions were seen as an affront to those recognized uh, uh, rights uh, and would actually form a large part of the uh, list of grievances uh, in the Declaration of Independence. So this proposal, of course, uh, was rejected. Uh, the uh, British government saw no need to allow uh, colonists to maintain uh, weapons. So uh, in response to this rejection, Samuel Adams uh, kind of published a commentary he says, it is reported that the governor has said that he has three things in command from the ministry. So that's the British ministry. It is conjectured first that the inhabitants of the, prom of the province will be disarmed, that they will then be uh, put under martial law, and, and this is probably the more dangerous one. I'll read it word for word. A number of gentlemen who have exerted themselves in the cause of their country are to be seized and sent to Great Britain. Unhappy America, when thy enemies are rewarded with honors and riches, but thy friends punished and ruined only for asserting thy rights and pleading for thy freedom. Uh, so essentially, uh, Britain was considering confiscation, martial law, and then, of course, the whole cutting the head off the snake type approach, taking the most um, impactful figureheads of the colonists and just actually removing them from the colonies back to Great Britain, presumably to stand trial. Now, what's interesting to note here is that this, the disarmament was placed before martial law. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't take much of a, of, a, of a logical flex to realize why that's an essential ordering of things, an essential progression. Uh, in order to enact martial law, in order to abridge natural rights, in order to subjugate populations, they must be disarmed. 
And what's particularly interesting here as well, and this is coming uh, you know, nearly a decade before the Declaration, is that there's, again, no, men- no mention made of militias, even though the militia is mentioned specifically uh, by the British on the American side. Uh, they don't decry the disarming of the militia as being the cause of this unjustness. Now, although the British often entertained thoughts of confiscation, one can imagine, as is present in the modern discourse, that one of the biggest issues with gun confiscation at this time, I'll say forced confiscation, uh, is that if the person with the gun doesn't want you to have the gun or to confiscate the firearm, they have the firearm there in order to defend that position. So the the British did succeed in confiscation in kind of small instances, uh, but with with this large difficulty of confiscation of armed people, uh, instead they determined, well, what we'll do instead is uh, we'll put an embargo on lead, uh, pig iron, uh, explosive powder, the things that colonists needed to manufacture and maintain firearms and ammunition. So they couldn't confiscate things directly. Uh, so instead, they just sought to kind of cut it off at the supply route, uh, which is not an unfamiliar circumstance in American history after the founding, uh, especially starting the 20th century with FDR, where you start to have additional taxes, fees, restrictions, requirements, uh, and all these things, of course, uh, only make it harder for poorer populations to exercise their uh, natural right to self-defense. Uh, but we'll definitely get on onto that a little bit more later on. Now, Samuel Adams, uh, he cites a legendary English jurist. His name is Sir William Blackstone. And he was, if not the most impactful jurist on the understanding in the founding era, uh, definitely in the top. Uh, and so... Logically, then, Samuel Adams uh, quotes him. This is a fairly long quote, uh, so I might skip through bits and pieces here. Uh, But he quotes Mr. Blackstone uh, to say, To vindicate these rights, uh, when actually violated or attacked, the subjects of England are entitled first to the regular administration and free course of justice in the courts of law, next to the right to petition the king and parliament for redress of grievances, and lastly, to the right of having and using arms for self-preservation and defense. Now, uh, again, quoting Blackstone, uh, Adam says that uh, he refers to these as auxiliary subordinate rights, which serve principally as barriers to protect and maintain and violate the three great and primary rights of personal security, liberty, and private property, and that the having of arms for the defense is in a public allowance under due restrictions of the natural right to resistance and self-preservation, when the sanctions of society and laws are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression. So even in English law, the governing principles of the time uh, was the right of self-preservation. And that right of self-preservation required the... uh, possession and use of firearms as well. Uh, In 1774, actually one of the uh, kind of 
instigating events of the revolution, uh, the British attempted to confiscate firearms in Boston. Uh, but they found that the citizens, again, were just too well armed and prepared uh, to resist that confiscation. And so an attempt to confiscate would result in war. Uh, so instead, they started to employ deceptive taxi- tactics, which these are going to sound familiar. Uh, they offered buyback programs, for example. Uh, they uh, promised to al- uh, allow access to weapons if they were uh, given to the British to be stored separately. And they also tried to use weapon confiscation as a tool of allowing freedom of movement. So they would occupy, let's say, a a town or a city, and they would say, okay, if you give us all your firearms, then you can leave. You can go to a different colony. You know, so they're essentially kind of softly occupying this area. So people would give up their weapons. And then the British would say, oh, actually, you can't leave now. And, of course, at this point... (laughs) The colonists had no recourse because they had surrendered uh, their firearms. Now to touch on what I consider to be uh, probably the most pertinent part of this, and that is the how, how firearms in the Second Amendment can be understood through natural rights theory. So in uh, Federalist 28, Alexander Hamilton referred to armed resistance as the exertion of that original right of self-defense. And of course, in that excerpt we just read uh, with uh, Judge Blackstone, he refers again to self-preservation, life, uh, as a, a natural defense or a natural right. Uh, in, in 1824, Thomas Jefferson, might have heard of that guy too, uh, he wrote that the constitutions of most of our states assert that all power is inherent in the people, that they may exercise it by themselves in all cases to which they think themselves competent. Or they may act by representatives, freely and equally chosen, that is their right and duty to be at all times armed, that they are entitled to freedom of persons, freedom of religion, freedom of property, and freedom of the press. In the structure of our legislatures, we think experience has proved the benefit of subjecting questions to separate bodies of liberation, but in constituting these natural rights. So Jefferson is explaining here how the power of the people to be self-regulating rests on their possession of sufficient means of exercising anti-tyrannical force if necessary, and that this was, in fact, a natural right. Uh, Similar type of observations and assertions are made everywhere throughout these documents. Uh, It's not a coincidence, for example, that the Declaration of Independence places life uh, prior to to all others as the foremost right of human beings. You have a right to live. Uh, This understanding is what makes murder wrong, for example, even if you exclude uh, moral arguments of sorts. In basic observance of natural rights theory, murder is the chief, uh, I guess, infringement or sin against natural rights theory uh, because by depriving someone of life, you've deprived them of everything. So examining this just logically, if you have a right to live, that means you have a right to ensure your life, what we call self-defense. So self-defense can also just be kind of understood as a a right to preserve your own life. Okay. So this right necessitates a sufficient means of self-defense. So firearms were understood as a manifestation of that right. 
Uh, so if you take kind of that logical progression of natural rights theory and you examine it alongside the Second Amendment, then that right is best understood as a sufficient means of self-defense against governmental tyranny. Not against deer with Kevlar vests, not for shooting clay pigeons, and really not even for uh, burglars, but to actively be capable of resisting federal tyranny. And this also makes sense when you consider that kind of the Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment understanding of natural rights, kind of the Lockean understanding, was that these rights uh, could be, were against things. You weren't, it wasn't a right to something, but from something. And generally, this was understood as a protection from society, such as protection of your person, but also from government. We have a tendency in the modern day to view government as some kind of weird, uh, almost Oz-like abstract, where somehow an individual is incapable, but 10 individuals are messianic. And, uh, of course, that's an erroneous assumption to make. In fact, uh, one person is hand, can be handled, 10 people are dangerous, and hence the essentialists of the Second Amendment. And many of the uh, grievances proposed in the Declaration of Independence uh, that justified the, uh, the, the severance of the colonies from England actually cited many similar obstructions. Uh, he, they posited, and of course this was authored by Thomas Jefferson, uh, that King George III was tyrannical, specifically because he violated their innate and natural rights of the people. And this included, as we discussed earlier, uh, the right to self-defense by trying to confiscate firearms. And of course then also embargoes. And that, that self-defense is a natural right is further uh, exemplified uh, with the debates surrounding the Bill of Rights especially that of the Ninth Amendment. Uh, James Madison argued that the Ninth Amendment uh, was necessary just to be sure that the Bill of Rights would not be misunderstood or, or mischaracterized uh, as being a collection exclusively of the rights that people have. And so the Ninth Amendment is very short. It reads simply, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Uh, now, again, this, this is a reflection of English common law, uh, which formed a large part of our early understanding of law and rights. Uh, and, of course, uh, that combines with natural rights theory. So we can understand, then, that the Ninth Amendment is referring to these rights, which would then include the right to self-defense, the right to self-preservation. Uh, going back to William Blackstone, uh, who was uh, in turn heavily influenced by John Locke, uh, which uh, everyone should read his second treatise on politics at a, at a minimum. Uh, but in Book 3, Chapter 1 of Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England, uh, he addresses the right of self-defense, and he categorizes it as the primary law of nature. So it is not, neither can it be, in fact, taken away by the law of society. Now, he doesn't just uh, relate this then to oneself. Uh, so I'm going to read his quote. It's going to sound a little funny. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, they wrote and spoke a little differently back in the good old days. 
Uh, so Judge Blackstone says that this right uh, also extends to defend, and I quote, husband and wife, parent and child, master and servant. In these cases, if the party himself or any of these his relations be forcibly attacked in his person or property, it is lawful for him to repel force by force. And the breach of the peace, which happens, is chargeable upon him only who began the affray. For the law in this case respects the passions of the human mind. And when external violence is offered to a man himself or those to whom, to whom he bears a near connection, makes it lawful in him to do himself that immediate justice to which he is prompted by nature and which no prudential motives are strong enough to restrain. The Second Amendment was the expression of this understanding. It extended this right to self-defense to the right of self-defense against federal tyranny as well, or really just all forms of tyranny. So thus the possession of the sufficient means to defend oneself is a natural right. It is enshrined in the Second Amendment, and this right extends to the right of individuals to protect themselves from a tyrannical government. Not from deer, not from clay pigeons, and not even specifically from the burglar. But, perhaps most vitally of all, from the very real and logical potential of tyrannical overreach. So the possession of the Second Amendment and the requirement for citizens to be allowed to possess firearms comparable to the firearms of the federal authority is self-evident. A people could not rise up and abolish a federal government without the sufficient means to do so. So the entire system of the Declaration of Independence is predicated on the belief that people would be sufficiently armed and equipped to overthrow tyrannical government. Uh, modern interpretations of the Second Amendment deny this very clear reality uh, with all of the uh, continued discourse on severe limitations on magazine size and all these silly things. All of these are simply step-by-step -step piecemeal ways to dilute the actual meaning of the Second Amendment. And of course, then one has to ask the logical question of why. And that is answered uh, pretty easily. Uh, gun control has used historically always as a tool of oppression, never as a tool of liberation or safety, uh, which Trudeau, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, of course, has his red vest on, uh, telling Canadians that they uh, do not have a right to self-defense using a firearm. Uh, I guess presumably one is to assume that the Canadian uh, police will protect them uh, if they're not busy arresting people uh, for COVID curfews or for protesting. So the most uh, notable gun laws that occurred in America initially uh, began to sprout up around the turn of the 19th century. And this is when southern slave states began to pass laws that restrict, restricted the possession of firearms by blacks. And this isn't just slaved blacks, mind you, but all blacks, uh, free and slave. Uh, again, like I mentioned earlier, indentured servants were often kind of lumped into this as well. Uh, and the primary goal was to prevent insurrection. Now, these laws, uh, although not exclusive to southern states, they were heavily, heavily premised in the southern states. And they maintained that uh, kind of dominance, if you will, uh, through the formation of the Democratic Party in 1824. 
And these laws were just expanded, uh, especially after uh, slave revolts and the like. Uh, at, uh, at one point, for example, uh, in many of the southern states, a black man could not even have a club in his hand. And whether he were free or slave, uh, he would be lashed 30 or more times publicly as, as a punishment for possessing, I don't know, an axe handle or whatnot. So after the Democratic Party lost the Civil War and they were uh, deprived of their valued and treasured institution of you know, enslaving blacks, uh, they actually not only maintained but largely stiffened and expanded uh, their regulation of weapons. Uh, and of course, as one can reasonably infer from a brief account of American history, uh, these were predicated against blacks. Uh, during this time period, uh, the... Um, the Democrat Party in the South, although again defeated, uh, they began to operate through the Ku Klux Klan and other such groups, lynchings, uh, really just rampant political terrorism. And of course, as we've already, as we already know, just from looking at the words of our founding fathers, in order to exercise this level of tyranny, in order to lynch, murder, kill, terrorize, to restrict the freedoms of black Americans during this time. It required them to be disarmed. So really the first wide-scale gun laws in the country were racist laws meant to enable the Democratic Party to execute at will black Americans in the South uh, and pursuant to the human experience, these laws were meant to create a population unable to defend themselves from tyranny and from terror. And the Democratic Party never released its grasp on being the party opposed to natural rights of self-defense or to uh, the founding principles then of a well-armed populace capable of defending itself from tyranny. Uh, the first federal uh, firearms regulations came, no big surprise, under FDR and the uh, Democrat trifecta that he enjoyed for the absurd amount of years that he was president of the United States. Uh, he passed uh, the first law in 1934. Uh, this law, it, like most everything FDR did, uh, levied massive taxes against uh, large portions of the firearm industry uh, importation, export, licensure, etc. Uh, in 1938, he passed no another law, and that's created this wonderful system of the federal firearms license uh, that is now required uh, to sell firearms. And of course, this added another cost burden to firearm possession and allowed uh, for the federal government then to involve itself directly in the free exercise of the Second Amendment by American citizens by requiring a license. Also allowed the federal government to benefit directly from all gun sales, imports, and exports uh, by requiring, of course, the license. Uh, so an example, uh, in 2021, the average cost of applying for an FFL, and of course it depends based on what level uh, you're going for, like it's a, a weird video game or something, uh, was 300 bucks. 300 bucks. 
So it's it's worth noting because this is going to be a pattern that emerges, and I found emerged consistently and constantly uh, throughout the 1787 project, uh, is that these types of laws were uh, passed under Democrat trifectas, and this same system occurred again under uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, who enjoyed another Democrat trifecta, of course. So they controlled the House, the Senate. And the presidency, and depending on the year, a large portion of the judiciary as well. And so, of course, now that he's uh, in a position of authority and they control the government for the most part, uh, they decide to pass more gun laws. So this is uh, the laws he passed. It's like the the one where you, you can't purchase a handgun across state lines. You have to be 21 years old to purchase a handgun. Uh, increase the waiting period. Uh, if all these sound familiar, even though it was 1968, it's because of the same policies being proposed today for uh, for rifles. So not a whole lot of imagination there. And we're going to discuss very shortly just how uh, ineffective these laws have been. And it's worth noting again, too, that all of these regulations being put into place just make it more difficult for poorer Americans to exercise their right to self-defense and the Second Amendment. And this would include, of course, disproportionately uh, minority populations. Uh, sales taxes and fees levied specifically on firearms and ammunition also, t- also negatively impact uh, lower income Americans at a greater rate uh, as far as being able to defend themselves, uh, afford licensing for concealed carry, uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, and this is omitting all of the additional costs of manufacturing firearms and whatnot as well. Every regulation is, by extension, an additional cost. So the Democratic Party historically has used gun restrictions as a way to render populations unable to defend themselves. And not only that particularly, but to unable to defend themselves against actions either by or sanctioned by the government. Uh, so, of course, not surprisingly then, uh, the strictest gun laws... Uh, the present day exists in states and cities dominated by the Democratic Party. Uh, and these laws also often disproportionately impact uh, non-white law-abiding uh, populations. So reading the Second Amendment through the natural rights theory and a lens of theory, it demonstrates this universal nature of the philosophy of natural rights. The right to keep and bear arms the right to self-defense, the right to preserve your life and the life of those, uh, your loved ones, your family and whatnot, and your property, uh, which you are also your own property. This applies to all races, genders, ethnicities, and creeds equally. Uh, And of course, this is just further reflected in that firearm possession tends to increase in higher income levels. Uh, But it's not determined. Uh, There's a reason that the the truths espoused in the founding are universal, timeless, and objective. Uh, they don't require special qualifiers, uh, except for the Democratic Party, uh, from a large chunk of its history, with which argued that the Second Amendment only applied uh, for white people. Uh, otherwise, it's very difficult to uh, subjugate and kill blacks whenever they can fire back and kill you. So now that we're just well-equipped See, this is all information that is vital to understand before someone even begins to pontificate about the modern discussion. And these are things that are ignored 
they were omitted from the modern discussion, uh, which of course renders uh, current debate largely meaningless and fallacious, and it really just comes down to who has majority political power, which is a disgusting way for a government to function. Uh, there should be some understanding of mutual uh, freedoms and equality regardless of the party in power. But unfortunately, there's only one party at present, uh, at least major party, that actually sees the value in equal application of law. So a lot of the the modern contentions, which we're going to go through and just destroy these things shortly, uh, are just repackaged claims made by FDR, LBJ, uh, and this is weird anthropomorphic fallacy that follows a lot of these uh, sensationalist emotive pleas, if you will. Uh, weird, weird phrasings of, of language, things like guns kill people, guns killing people, uh, killed by guns. This is all utterly absurd. Uh, guns are an object. It's no different than saying uh, people killed by reading glasses or killed by automobiles. Uh, we have a strange tendency to separate the object from the operator, uh, which is, of course, a very dangerous thing to do and really highlights the absurdity of a lot of the, the current uh, proposals because seeking to, that these proposals only seek to attack the object and not the actual cause of these issues. And this is not even uh, a discussion of, of really that's supported by any factual data, which we'll, we'll gonna dig into that here uh, quite shortly. So most of these attempts then, most of these arguments for gun control are distortions of that kind of similar anthropomorphic uh, fallacy. Uh, and they also attempt to distort factual data uh, through the careful selection of language, uh, which I write about the use of language for large, uh, to, to push social agendas uh, all throughout uh, the, the 1787 project uh, outline, especially when it comes to large uh, kind of tyrannical legislation. And so generally what you'll find are terms like gun deaths, killed by guns. And the reason that these terms are used and not useful terms like gun homicides is because if you say the words gun violence, that includes suicides, uh, that includes uh, justified use of firearms and self-defense uh, by both citizens and police. It even includes accidental firearm deaths. Um, I don't attribute someone cleaning their gun and shooting themselves to be gun violence. It is an unfortunate circumstance and tragedy, of course, but it is certainly not an act of violence unless one adopts the absurd notion that a gun in and of itself is capable of violence, which it is not. It is an inanimate object. So they try to lump suicides and all these other things together to really bloat this term. So there's... There's one uh, one kind of soundbite-sized thing that's been circulating uh, frequently, and I write, wrote about it and gave it a very good dissection, actually, on my website. Uh, but it claims that you know, over, over 1.5 million people have died from guns since 1968. Well, first, this is absurd, because people cannot die from guns. Uh, your guns cannot kill... Uh, and I guess you're left to presume then that it was actually the bullets that were fired from the guns that caused the death. And of course, who controlled that gun? A uh, human being. So there's that. So besides kind of that silliness, there's uh, an overt deception here 
uh, descri- like we described earlier, that's meant to conflate all gun deaths as homicide. In reality, uh, both suicide and homicide rates by firearms today are lower than the 1970s. Uh, going by 2017 figures, there were about 4.6 gun homicides per 100,000 citizens. If you look at 1977, there were 7.7 per 100,000. Now, we're creeping closer to that number. 2020 was, of course, a terrible year uh, because of all the peaceful protests and the uh, tyrannical COVID lockdowns. Uh, but even then, uh, we're, we, are, we have not yet to pass our 1970s, uh, I guess, personal best. Another thing to factor into these numbers is that the CDC has, uh, at a minimum, concluded that 500,000 times every year firearms are used defensively. Uh, so this could be to prevent rape, murder, assault, uh, you name it. And some years go as high as 3 million. So if we take that same year, 1968, that would mean that between 1968 and 2022, there were at least 27 million instances where a firearm prevented crime. This includes violent crime. This includes rape. This includes murder. So if 27 million such crimes are prevented compared to 1.5 million gun deaths, which are not homicides, I'd say just based on that alone, I would would throw in on the side of the firearms. So examine, for example, uh, the years 2020 to 2021. So in 2020, uh, there were 8,695 gun homicides. Now that is actually an increase over the previous years. However, in that same uh, year, or rather, sorry, 2021, there were 1.67 million uses of firearms defensively. 8,695 homicides committed by guns, 1.6 million defensive uses of firearms. Again, examining that, the firearms are looking uh, pretty preferable. Now, the way statistics are used, uh, generally through selective reading or omission of data, uh, to uh, to kind of get to a desired conclusion, right? So everyone looks at the same information, and then they omit or include or whatnot data that best supports what they want it to say. So instead of shaping or examining or criticizing their own uh, presuppositions on factual data, they try to distort factual data to fit that presupposition. Uh, so it's not unlike, really... Um, you know, historical revisionism. Uh, so in uh, suicide, for example, uh, always outpaces homicide as the bulk share of fatalities attributed to firearms. So looking at 2020 again, uh, suicides were, uh, they accounted for 54% of all gun-related deaths. And yet, for some reason, uh, sensationalist headlines uh, routinely repeat this notion that there's record gun deaths uh, again, omitting the fact uh, or omitting the, the context of what those deaths were constituted of. If someone were, was to t- say, for example, that there was a record number of gun deaths in 2022, and later uh, data showed that you know 60% of those gun deaths were women shooting a, a wannabe attempted rapist, uh, that would be fantastic. I would uh, 
that, that would be uh, that would be just great. I think that would be just uh, I would love to see that happen actually. Uh, <laughs> so many arguments also uh, they'll post these really sensational statements, something silly like 124 individuals on average die from gun violence every day, and again this number is including suicides and justified use of firearms. So if you adjust that that number for actual homicide, the number changes to 24. So not 124, but just 24. So you're looking at an 80% reduction from the figure that's provided in this report. And actually, I do cite that report here. It's allegedly some official whatever. If I sound flippant, it's because I discount any any type of so-called authoritative source that selectively omits data. That's kind of a pet peeve of mine, actually. So let's let's put this number in context. So 24 people a day dying from gun homicide. That still sounds pretty bad, right? And it sounds bad to us because we live our lives. We think of 24 people we know, and we think how terrible that would be. But let's let's look at it uh, compared to some other causes of death adjusted for a per day basis. Uh, every day, 102 Americans die uh, from fentanyl overdoses. Uh, every day, 9.4 people are murdered by means that don't use firearms at all. Uh, 551 people die every day from accidents. And 32 people die every day from drunk driving. Uh, which it should be noted, of course, that driving drunk is illegal. And yet somehow people still do it, and they still kill people at, num- at numbers that far outpace uh, those attributed to gun homicides. I suppose the argument to be made then is that we need uh, common sense drunk control or some other absurdity. So it is factually true that 2020 saw the highest total number of gun deaths in the United States. Very true. But the statistic does not take into account the growing population of the nation either. On a per capita basis, there were 13.6 gun deaths per 100,000 people in 2020. And that is the highest rate since the mid-1990s, but it's still well, well below the rate of peak gun deaths in 1974, which was 16.3 gun deaths per 100,000 people. So one cannot discuss the Second Amendment gun rights uh, and such without mass shootings. So first, just to kind of set the table here, uh, starting in 1950 to the present day, 94% of all mass shootings occur in gun-free zones or other soft targets. So perhaps that is, if you're looking for a return on your investment for policy proposals, that might be a good place to start. And obviously, based on that statistic, the solution is not declaring more places gun-free school zones, unless you're trying to afford psychopaths Uh, more convenient means uh, to go and destroy innocent life. So these murderers and these terrorists, they always attack soft targets, or virtually always. Uh, Rare exceptions, sometimes they're actually attempting to commit suicide. Uh, And this has been a known reality forever. Uh, You know, uh, politicians have personal security. Banks, airports, even marijuana dispensaries have armed security. And the purpose of the security is not simply to react, but to deter, uh, because you're hardening that area, that target. Uh, and of course, we don't apply this argument to 
gun-free zones because we have this absurd juvenile fantasy that if you tell people no guns allowed, that those who are determined to commit acts of mass casualty are going to be deterred by a sign with a little X through it or whatnot. So another kind of uh, contextual thing here uh, that improves your, your perception on things, mass shootings only account for about 0.1% of firearm homicides between 2000 and 2014. Now this is really kind of contrary to the popular uh, headlines of the day and the sensationalism of the day. Um, one such uh, one that that's really propagates everywhere is that the U.S. is responsible for 30% of all global mass shootings compared to other developed countries. And that is the epitome of a cherry-picked statement. If you actually examine it uh, through all available data, uh, you find that the U.S. Uh, comprises uh, 4.6% of the global population, so that's our share of the population. But we only have 1.43% of mass shooters. So even based on our total percentage of population, we have a, a, a tiny uh, fractional representation for mass shooters. So not only are mass shootings less frequent in America, but they're also less lethal on average. Uh, this imaginary kind of 30% statistic was actually an intentional deception by a man named Adam Lankford. And of course, he came up with this uh, so-called data, and it was pushed through the New York Times, Washington Post, and essentially all of those uh, pseudo-news agencies who were like, hey, this is great, this guy is saying a thing that uh, supports our narrative and our policy proposals, so let's put him out everywhere. Uh, but Langford deliberately omitted data from foreign countries in order to fulfill that thesis. He wanted this study to show that America was this uh, embroiled epidemic of mass shootings. And this is a logical kind of presumption that we're left to make because uh, Langford has refused to provide any of the data sets that he used or research to attain uh, this 31% statistic. Uh, so we're, we're unable really to uh, scrutinize the data. So you also have 56% uh, of all mass shootings use only a handgun. Only 28% of any mass shootings even use a rifle. And of those 28%, not all end up actually using the rifle to, uh, to shoot or commit acts of violence. And the average age of a mass shooter is 34. So one is left to wonder why current proposals are to raise the age of buying a rifle, a rifle that is used in a vast minority of shootings, 221. Well, there is no logic. That's the problem. Uh, it's also a very silly kind of notion that armed security does not function as a deterrent to violent confrontation. Um, we don't even need to call upon statistics to, to refute that claim. One need look around you at life. Um, for all of human history, guards have been used to deter, uh, prevent, and in rare, in rare instances, comparatively, to react to violent uh, circumstances. Of course, armed guards are a deterrent. That's why we have them 
everywhere else. That's why the same politicians who claim that armed guards don't deter anything have armed guards and often send their children to schools with armed guards. Uh, it's another manifestation of this kind of ruling class elitism uh, that renders itself uh, through this. It's also very strange. You might have noticed through some of these statistics we've already covered, uh, especially uh, the, the very small, almost only quarter of, of all mass shootings use rifles, and yet that is always the obsession when there's a mass shooting event, is we have to do more about rifles, 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 rifles. But that's an, a ridiculous notion, uh, both for mass shootings and for uh, firearm uh, homicides kind of more broadly. So if you look at uh, 2015, for example, let's start there. There was 250 homicides committed uh with a rifle. Now, they don't specify bolt action, musket loader, lever action, semi-automatic. But regardless, just lumping all of those categories to, in together, uh, there were still 1,533 people were killed by knives or other cutting instruments. 435 people were killed with blunt objects. And 651 were killed with hands and feet. An additional 1,727 people were killed with other weapons or means not stated. So there were 1,218% more people murdered not using a firearm than using a rifle. So just to recount that, uh, that was not a one-off. Those same numbers uh, stay rather consistent uh, from 2015 through 2019. And of course, then we have 2020, which was uh, apparently the year of violence. and But it still maintained many of these same patterns, uh, despite all the sensationalist and selectivist headlines uh, discussing the, the killing machine of the AR-15. Uh, all, 386 people were killed by rifles. So that is an increase, sure. Uh, but 2,017 people were killed by knives or other objects. So again, the rifle, as far as its overall share of homicide, is tiny compared to all other means. And if nothing else, it demonstrates that without a rifle, people are still going to kill each other through other ways. And we'll, we'll talk about a couple instances of mass stabbings here later on, too. So in, in these mass shootings, of course, handguns are used in 83% of all of them. And they're used exclusively in about 56%. Uh... Specific just to homicide, handguns were used in 59% of homicides and non-negligent manslaughter incidents in 2020. And that same year, 2020, rifles were involved in 3%. So we have handguns, which are already controlled federally and have been since 1968. Uh, and of course, those laws were marketed to the American people as uh, a magic panacea to the violence that they had seen uh, growing into society and of course it didn't do that because now here we are in 2020 and we have uh, the use of handguns in 83% of all mass shootings uh, and 59% of homicide and non-negligent manslaughter incidents. If you actually examine have a deeper extrapolation of the data uh, out of the kind of broader rifle category uh, they have started to include assault rifle, uh, which that was only used in 14% of mass shootings or mass shooting incidents. So, again, uh, 
why the focus on the rifle? Well, simple. It's very emotional. It's something that they uh, try to make you scared of, right? It's scary. And look at all these things you can do with it. Uh, so, but unfortunately, this sensationalism and this emotive fallacy, uh, it withers when it's given even really the slightest scrutiny. These statistics are available. Uh, these are all been drawn from the FBI's uh, own website and databases, uh, Table 8 for 2015 to 2019. And they've just released the 2020 uh, accounts. You have to have a spreadsheet or some other such format to view that, but it's also easily available uh, online. Uh, just briefly a touch on the absurdity of high-capacity magazines. Uh, it's farcical. Uh, there is no evidence that any restrictions ever on uh, magazine capacity have any impact on suicides, mass shootings, or homicides. Um, one specific example would be the shooter in Virginia Tech. Uh, there were uh, magazine restrictions at the time, so he brought 19 magazines with him. I'm not talking about good house- housekeeping, obviously. We, he would just shoot till empty, click, replace. Uh, the average reload time for a magazine is only two to four seconds, uh, and that can be reduced through practice and muscle memory. Uh, and beyond that, most most mass shootings don't use magazines that hold 30 or more, which is kind of this arbitrary abstract subjective number that apparently constitutes high capacity. So there's no regulation uh, or even confiscation of rifles or high capacity magazines that would have any meaningful impact on violent crime, homicides, and especially not on mass shootings. Uh, So this presents a very legitimate concern or question is why is there such a overwhelming fixation on rifles? And why did they, why, why is this imaginary term assault rifle being created to apply almost exclusively just to the AR-15. And if handguns are used in crimes so often, why aren't they the target of stricter regulation? Uh, And of course, to answer the latter first, they already are the subject of stringent federal regulation. Uh, Through FDR, and then especially through LBJ, uh, there's myriads of laws against handguns, uh, but that hasn't prevented their use or really even seemingly uh, reduce their use in suicides or homicides. Uh, so really all this demonstrates is the ineffectiveness of such laws. And this is despite the obvious overreach uh, to the Second Amendment rights. So anti-Second Amendment activists seek to apply these same laws that are ineffective to rifles, and they expect a unique outcome. Or maybe they don't. Uh, maybe they just want to regulate these weapons. So if you examine the clear historical failure of handgun legislation uh, that was marketed, of course, as a solution to to murder, uh, what's the potential rationale for all the sensationalism surrounding rifles? And the answer to that is specific to the Second Amendment. Uh, The Second Amendment, as we've explored exhaustively, was not about self-defense from individuals so much. That's a natural right. That didn't, that was not necessary to be accounted specifically. However, the use of uh, firearms to defend against federal tyranny or governmental tyranny more generally is specifically what the Second Amendment addresses. Hence, the rifles. The AR 15s, semi automatic rifles, so called assault weapons are the closest facsimile that a civilians are allowed uh, 
to own uh, that are comparable to military-grade weapons. And I use that phrase very specifically. And when I mean that, uh, it is the closest. They're not identical. Uh, civilians cannot purchase military-grade weapons. I cannot go down to a Cabela's and get the new uh, uh, military-issued Six Tower X-250. Uh, no, nothing like that at all. So that might provide a bit of insight into why rifles are being so targeted, because they're not used in a vast majority of homicides. They're not used in a vast majority of mass shootings. And they're not even responsible in most all firearm violence, but they are the tools that most readily fulfill the spirit and the stated purpose of the Second Amendment. So the targeting of rifles is not to reduce violence, not to reduce gun deaths. Uh, specifically because they are combat multipliers. Now, we can kind of exemplify this beyond the obvious. Um, I don't think anybody is going to uh, to underst- or try to posit that a, a Glock 17 is as useful in a military excursion as an AR-15 or some other type of semiotic rifle. If that was the case, then we would not issue rifles, and not every other government in the world would not issue rifles uh, to their infantrymen and whatnot. Everybody would just go in with their handguns. But a particular event in recent history really highlights this. So uh, the United States has always spent taxpayer money to send (laughs) an absurd amount of firearms, and not the kind that U.S. citizens are allowed to own, but specifically the ones that we're not allowed to own, uh, send them all over the world. And of course, the latest example is Ukraine, Uh, Ukraine being invaded by a communist tyrant, in Vladimir Putin, uh, and using taxpayer money, of course, uh, we uh, equip them to resist that tyranny. We don't send them 10 round magazines. We don't send them shotguns that hold three three slugs. I almost said bullet like half the politicians who don't know guns talk about. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, and we don't send them, uh, you know, these tightly regulated instruments. We send them fully automatic fully equipped weapons, sometimes shoulder-mounted rocket launchers, to defeat the forces of a tyrannical government invading uh, their country. Now, note, too, that all these weapons being sent to these other nations, uh, the rulers that be, they're not concerned about uh, the age of the user. They're not concerned about the mental health of the user. They're not concerned about magazine capacity or if the weapon looks scary. Uh, In fact, they send weapons specifically designed uh, for being the most optimal way to resist tyrannical violence. Uh, Those weapons are already banned for a majority of United States citizens. And now the current conversation is how to further disarm and reduce kind of that balance between the Second Amendment right of citizens to possess firearms as a check and balance to congressional control over the state militias, which we firmly establish as being the purpose, uh, both through the adoption of English common law and natural rights theory, and especially as it's codified in the Constitution, 
explained by our founding fathers. So let's look at a couple more statistics just to really highlight the silliness of a lot of the current conversation. So a lot of, uh, again, using that selective language, killed by guns, uh, gun violence, that kind of thing. Uh, the United States is maligned as being like this outdoor shooting gallery, like, like the entire United States is Chicago, Illinois. But in reality, uh, in the United States, uh, 0.6% of all deaths are a result of homicide. And if you examine just on homicide, uh, we're below the global average, which is 1%, and we're actually ranked 106 in the world. Uh, El Salvador, which has the notable distinction of being ranked number one for homicides, uh, 7.57% of all deaths come as a result of homicide. So the United States only figures in the top statistics if you adopt and use the intentional and deceptive language of all gun deaths or some other euphemism. Uh, We're not even in the top 10 when these numbers are adjusted to include only firearm homicides. Uh, And a lot of anti-gun activists also ignore uh, other methods that are used to commit acts of mass violence or murder. Uh, not just the United States from elsewhere, especially in, in these countries that, that uh, they often point at as the shining examples of utopian nations uh, who don't have uh, armed citizens. So I'm going to recount a couple of these briefly. Uh, in 2004 in Spain, there was a bombing, 192 deaths, 2,050 injuries. Uh, 2005, Great Britain, another bombing with 52 deaths and 784 injuries. Uh, in 2008, uh, Japan had a car ramming and stabbing attack, uh, seven deaths and injuries. In 2010, China had a, uh, I guess what you call a mass shovel loader incident uh, that resulted in 11 deaths and 30 injuries. Uh, China had another mass stabbing with 31 deaths and 143 injuries. Uh, and another car ramming attack in China in 2014 with six deaths and 13 injuries. Uh, 2015, Germany, uh, of course, uh, terrorists hijacking of a plane, 150 deaths. Uh, in Belgium, there was another bombing, 21 deaths, 180 injuries. Uh, France had a car ramming incident, 86 deaths, 434 injuries. Uh, Japan, mass stabbing, 19 deaths, 45 injuries. And again, Great Britain in 2017 with a bombing, 22 deaths, 250 injuries. Uh, in the United States, the most lethal attack ever conducted against a school was in 1927. It's called the Bath Massacre. It used explosives, killed 44 people, 38 of them were children. They were students at the school. In 2021, a radicalized black supremacist uh, who called for violence against Jews and so-called, air quotes, white people, uh, he drove his SUV into a Christmas parade crowd, uh, killed six and he wounded uh, 60 others. And, of course, that's that's a more recent one there. What's interesting is, much like the gun thing, headlines were absurd. CNN ran an article that said that a SUV drove through a crowd as if it was some self-driving homicidal AI or something. Uh, in 1973, uh, there were 32 people killed uh, at a gay bar uh, using uh, lighter fluid, so arson. Uh there were another 88 people killed again with arson in New York City in 1990. July 5th, 2019, 
Uh, a man burned his wife and children to death in their trailer, which still counts as a mass casualty event. Did not use a firearm. So all of these other statistics I've just sh- I've, I've detailed with the rifle, the handgun, uh, the percentage of homicides, the U.S.'s role in the world, it's useful to to understand this information just to defeat some of the popular narratives that are uh, erroneously used against the United States to malign us. I guess presumably to create some type of, of false moral underpinning for gun control legislation. Uh, but really, none of those none of those rationales are necessary. Uh, the uh, Second Amendment and the foundational spirit of natural right to self-defense uh, far, far override any other contentions. Um, that is something that separates, really, on a political level, uh, various parties at present today. Um, I would love to see a political party that was founded on natural rights and through the equal application of those things to the Constitution. Um, as it currently stands, this not really doesn't appear to be any particular party that uh, really rides that wave, so to say. So <clears throat> what the Second Amendment was, was a codification of already accepted natural rights of human beings to self-defense, self-preservation. But what the Second Amendment did was it elevated that to a position where it could be used as a check and balance on federal tyranny. This is not a theory. Uh, it's not an interpretation. Uh, you can read the documents at the time, the people who wrote the Second Amendment uh, and rewrote the Second Amendment and then finally ratified it, and this was their understanding. Uh as deeply entrenched as the founding was in natural rights theory, could really not be understood any other way anyway. Uh, the Second Amendment was never discussed in any of these debates by any founders, framers, or anyone, even the even those opposed to the Second Amendment, which there weren't any. Uh, it was never discussed as a tool for hunting or just as a tool for defending oneself against society, against burglars, for sports shooting, none of those things. It was examined and discussed solely as a universal right of American citizens to own and possess firearms as a check to potential governmental tyranny that resulted from congressional control of state militias. There is nowhere in any record of these debates, speeches, or any of the personal communications that any framer questioned the right of citizens to keep and bear arms. It is only a matter of question if that would be a sufficient check. They definitely weren't concerned about something as trivial as the kind of firearm, how many bullets it could hold, uh, what type of ammunition it used, or anything like that. Uh, They also never insinuated any type of federal authority over uh, firearm regulations. And they never implied that the federal government had any such authority. Uh, The Tenth Amendment uh, solidified the right of Americans to self-defense and uh, the... Ninth Amendment did as well, representation uh, of an understanding of both English common law and natural rights theory. And the Second Amendment simply solidified this understanding that this right was actionable against federal tyrannical overreach. And of course, history supports this. Prior to these being implemented, gun confiscation, control, subjugation by natural power, or uh, federal power, rather, uh, it created the impetus to enshrine this in the founding doctrine. 
Uh, and of course, the southern states uh, dominated by the Democrat p- uh, political machine uh, when they sought to continually oppress and maintain slavery that required that they disarm uh, their, uh, any blacks in the state, including free uh, and slave, of course, as well. Uh, and of course, this also paved the way for the lynching and persecution and terrorism against blacks uh, in the South throughout Reconstruction, uh, especially uh, since blacks at that time uh, were Republicans. Uh, and so they would lynch white and black Republicans together. Uh, I guess that was the uh, original instance of uh, Democrat Party inclusiveness there. Uh, and so we can see evidence in our own history that the deliberate purpose of gun restrictions is to create a vulnerable population, uh, specifically for government tyranny. And we see that continue today. Uh, where we, it's the states and cities that are most dominated by Democrats that have the strictest gun uh, restrictions and who also tend to have the highest uh, incidences of gun homicides. So this, the modern conversation surrounding uh, the firearm debate uh, is heavily perverted through many of the same mechanisms actually utilized by historical revisionists. Uh, language is a very delicate thing and it can be a very dangerous thing it's very easy to change a few words and change the entire meaning of a statement uh, so using terms like gun deaths killed by guns uh, they create a false narrative a false perception of rampant gun violence that simply does not exist in the united states uh, and we already have a litany of gun laws and restrictions at the federal and state levels uh, that seek to uh, i guess prevent human nature from taking course. Um, uh, I live in Illinois, uh, thankfully not in Chicago, but to live in Chicago and Illinois is a double whammy for gun restrictions. Uh, And then ironically, uh, the current mayor, which is uh, Lightfoot, um, she she blames guns from out of state um, for the rampant crime in Chicago although that doesn't explain why those states don't then have rampant crime if it's simply the possession of these guns that results in the crime. Uh, so another, another logical fallacy at work there pretty, pretty effectively. Uh, so the current attempts to take these laws and apply them to rifles, besides the fact that they're absurd, and we have history to look at uh, since 1968 that demonstrates the ineffectiveness of these laws. Rifles are involved in a, just a tiny fraction of homicides. It, it's a small number of mass shootings even. Uh, but they are the closest thing that citizens are currently allowed to possess uh, that are comparable to the, uh, to the firearms possessed by the uh, federal government. Uh, so no regulations would actually affect gun uh, homicides or violence through the use of rifles. But it would diminish the capacity or potential for uh, an armed population to function as a uh, the proper check and balance on the congressional control or federal control, if you will, of state militias, or at this point, our and our uh, current thing, the standing army. Uh, and a lot of these statistics that are used to try to uh, really malign uh, the United States are also selectively interpreted and intentionally miscommunicated to create this false perception that America is this giant country just rampant and violent uh, gun crime, uh, which is demonstrably not true and statistically inaccurate. 
And of course, there's uh, we can always return to the understanding of the defensive use of firearms. Uh, minimum of 500,000 times a year. So you have 500,000 uh, defensive uses of firearms a year. And the worst years that we've had, we've never topped 20,000 gun homicides. That's a pretty favorable ratio, I'd say. And it really just goes to show that uh, these restrictions and regulations don't apply to law-abiding citizens anyway. Uh, they would only uh, assist the criminals. So now that we've finally explored the, uh, the lengthy history and nature of the Second Amendment, we're really just left to wonder and question, as inquiring minds should, especially good law-abiding citizens, uh, what exactly is the rationale then for the current sensationalism surrounding uh, the restriction of rifles being used or, and being possessed by citizens. Uh, all of the proposals are uh, not only arbitrary, but have already proven themselves to be ineffective. Uh, they're identical policies that were enacted in 1968 against handguns, for example. Uh, the insistence that raising the age of 21 would have any impact at all is also uh, a a falsehood. Uh, the average age of mass shooters in American history has been 34. Uh, so 21, not going to make a big difference there. Although it does call into question uh, the validity then of uh, 18 being the year designated adulthood legally. Uh, so now with all these kind of things uh, threshed out, understood the purpose of the Second Amendment, uh, the natural right of self-defense, kind of this purification of America's standing on the world stage as far as violent crime, gun crime, gun homicides especially. Uh, and even beyond that, America is unique. It is an exception. Uh, and again, to tip of the hat to uh, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, and he mentioned this specifically when he, in the same a breath that he told Canadian citizens that they have no right to defend themselves from firearms. Uh, he used the United States as a foil. And of course, he erroneously used some of the same information uh, that pretends like the United States is rampant with gun crime. But he did specify that Canada is not the United States. The United States is unique in that regard, that we take the right to self-preservation and self-defense as a natural right, not something that the government gives us, but that is inherent in us as our nature of human beings. Uh, so hopefully now you, you're well acquainted with these circumstances, uh, these facts and figures, and I would argue even more importantly, the philosophical understanding and the history of the Second Amendment and how firearms have always been understood. Uh, and, of course, the instances and rationales behind disarming populations, um, which, unfortunately, we don't have to look too far back in our own history to see examples of uh, uh, really uh, racist gun policies being implemented by democratically controlled states in order to subjugate and terrorize uh, black Americans. So if you feel like you've learned something useful here, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please feel free to subscribe. Uh, Give me a five-star review, and I would encourage you to uh, go to 1787project.com uh, to examine other uh, books and podcasts that are specific to American history 
and seek to correct a lot of the revisionism, uh, the same type of spirit that uh, pollutes the modern discourse on firearms.